Welcome. <clears throat> the subject of this talk is <clears throat> former monotheism or a living faith. To give it a subtitle, does God want us to conform or does he want us to believe? Every Muslim will tell you, oh, he believes, he has an iman, he has a faith. But I hope that by the time this lecture is over, you might have a different impression of that. The talk I'm going to give you here is going to be a bit different, something new. You may not see things the way I see them, but I would ask you to listen very carefully to this. Because when this perception came to me, and I saw it clearly the way heaven sees things, you tend to be able to identify yourself as a Christian more fully, and you know what the sharp difference is, the real distinction is between Christianity and Islam. <clears throat> now, there are many religions on earth, and most of them have founders. Uh, Judaism, founded by Moses. Buddhism, founded by Gautama Buddha. Confucianism, founded by Confucius. Uh, Christianity, founded by Jesus. Islam, founded by Muhammad. And you can go on to Hinduism, no known founder, etc., etc. And we see many religions on earth, and we tend to categorize all of religious history on earth under these. You pick up any book on world religions, and this is what you find. Hinduism, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, and so on. But I've been giving a lot of thought to how heaven sees religion on earth. What do the angels of heaven, if they look on this planet and they see what's here, and have a strong suspicion they do from many paragraphs of scripture, when they come face to face with human beings on earth, they seem to know a lot about what's going on down here. And how does God see it? How does the Holy Spirit see it? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that heaven sees only three religions on earth. It doesn't see what we see. It has an x-ray vision. It penetrates more deeply into religious devotion, into what religion is. And it sees only three religions on earth. First one it sees is antitheism. And that is the worship of the creature rather than the creator. Now, this takes many forms. <clears throat> if you look at Hinduism, it's the worship of Indian gods. Now, I say Indian gods because the gods look like Indian animals and Indian creatures. They're obviously localized gods. And I've often sort of teased Hindus and said, once you move to a country like South Africa or somewhere, how do you know your gods have come with you? Because the one god looks like Hanuman and another god looks uh, like something else. Hanuman has an elephant face and he looks like an Indian elephant. And you find Krishna goes around on a peacock, but peacocks are, you know, only native to India. So it's Indian gods looking after Indian people. And you can have, as in Africa, the worship of ancestral spirits. You can have pagan mythology. You can have anything you like. But as far as heaven is concerned, it doesn't matter what labels we put on it. It's the same thing. And Romans 1.23 has a perfect definition of this. Where Paul says, for although they knew God and did not honor him as God, nor did they give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fooled, fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling birds, animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, says Paul in verse 25, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. Right. One religion heaven sees in Israelite times, the worship of Baal, the Asherah, antitheism. 
That's how heaven sees it. Doesn't matter what form it takes. It's God saying you are worshiping the creature. You're distracting your worship away from me and not worshiping me. Now, there are only other two religions on earth that heaven sees. And not the ones we see, but heaven sees them. And I want to suggest to you that they are the oldest religions on earth. And uniquely, they were founded on the same day. They were actually founded by two brothers. One was Cain and the other one was Abel. And the reason I say this is because this is the first mention of religion in the Bible. Uh, nothing in the story of Adam and Eve and their fall to indicate any religious response to God. But the first time you see that response, it comes through Cain and Abel, when each one of them brought an offering to God. You know, the amazing thing is that at face value, you can't see any distinction between them. They look the same. Had you stood there as an observer, this is what you would have seen. Cain is a farmer. He tills the ground and he plants fruits and vegetables. And at a point in time, he takes a portion of his produce and he comes for what we would call a harvest festival today. And at the harvest festival, he offers a portion of it to God and puts it in front of him to acknowledge God. Now, Abel didn't even go to all the trouble Cain did. He didn't till the ground. He didn't sweat and work. He just simply was a shepherd. And he had sheep and he looked after them. And I suppose he sheared the wool and maybe had lamb chops for dinner. I don't know. But anyway, what we do know is that he did the same as Cain. He took a few of the lambs that he had and he slaughtered them. And he brought the firstlings of the offering of the lambs that he had slain from his flock. It looks the same. A little portion of what he was doing, the way he was farming, and he offers it to God. And I've heard many Christians say to me, and I, including myself in this for a long time, what's the difference? Still can't see to this day. Why does Genesis 4, verse 4 and 5 say, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard? Do you think that's just an innocuous statement that we can't explain? Actually, to me, this is one of the most definitive statements in the whole Bible. Because from there, everything follows. What you find in the whole of the Old Testament and in the New is that what Abel offered to God is acceptable to this day. Hebrews 11, by faith, Abel offered up to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he received approval as righteous. And watch that sequence, watch that catalogue of faithful men who gained approval with God by the same way. It's the only way to get approval with God. The religion of Cain is the only other religion in the world. Say so they look very similar. And even to this day, and this is the problem, that throughout the Christian church in particular, the religion of Cain and the faith of Abel live together. Very often, they work harmoniously together. I wonder sometimes if Abel and Cain didn't sort of look at each other and say, well, here we are. We've decided we're going to give something to God. Which one goes first? Spin the coin. All right, Cain, you go first. I don't know even that Abel may have been fully aware of the difference of what he was doing. But the difference is so dramatic that it just permeates Scripture thereafter. And it will carry on until Jesus came comes. The Quran itself Funnily enough, also happens to mention the story. And let me read this to you from Surah 5, verse 27. Relate to them the story of the two sons of Adam with truth. When they offered a sacrifice which is accepted of one of them, but not accepted of the other. And that's all it says. And I can't blame the Quran for saying that because the Bible says no more. 
Nowhere does either book try to explain why the Lord had regard for the offering of Abel and not Cain. But you get a hint of it in the Quran when Cain turns to Abel and he's in envy and resentment and he says, I will certainly kill you. Well, let me tell you the difference between these two offerings and perhaps you'll see why I say that once you see this, you see everything. The religion of Cain, what he did was to offer God a gesture. What Abel offered was a sacrifice. Cain gives God just a gesture. He has his own lands. He has his own fruit. He exploits the earth in every way he can for his own benefit. We know that when he built a city after this that we conceive as almost like the first property tycoon for his son Enoch. And he went about his life obviously saying to God, my life is my own. Uh, you created me, but I live on this planet and I'll see what there is here and I will make the most of my life and I'll make the best of it and I will work hard and I'll sweat. But whatever the fruit of it is, it's mine. Basically, I'm the master of my own destiny. I was not implicated in my parents and I don't care what Adam and Eve did. Got nothing to do with me. I'll be myself towards you. I will acknowledge you as my God and my creator. Sure. Once a while, as I'm doing today, I'll come around and salute you. Once a week, if necessary. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you choose the day, I'll be there. But I was not implicated in my parents' sin. And by the way, I'm not my brother's keeper either. That's Genesis 4, verse 9. After he had killed Abel, he showed towards God exactly what was wrong with him, what's wrong with his sacrifice. It was just a gesture, and it came from a cold heart. There was no love for God in Cain whatsoever. Well, I defined Romans 1. I've defined antitheism perfectly. And there's one passage in Scripture that defines the religion of Cain perfectly. Matthew 15, verses 8 to 9, and this is heaven's opinion of formal monotheism, which is what the religion of Cain is. Formal monotheism, just coming around and repeating the same gesture to acknowledge God, but with a heart that's cold to him, far from him, and says, I'm the master of my destiny and not you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And it doesn't matter how often you do it, it doesn't help. Let me read these words to you from Hebrews 10 verse 11. And this is the religion of Cain. Let me put it to you bluntly. All Jews today, all Muslims today, and the vast majority of people in the Christian world follow the same religion, the religion of Cain. Whether it's coming around on a Friday or a Saturday or a Sunday, whatever it may be, whether it's the, a different form of dress, whether it's a different time of day, once you just fall back onto formal monotheism, onto just going through routines, onto being religious, being devout, whatever it may be, when it's just you coming and offering a gesture to God all the time to somehow acknowledge him, salute him, and, and admit his uh, creation of your being, but not his lordship over your life, you follow the religion of Cain. And here it comes, Hebrews 10 verse 11. And every priest, I'm going to emphasize certain words, I want you to listen carefully. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And here you see the irony of all this. The emphasis, every, daily, repeatedly the same. Wow, going around in circles 
and never coming anywhere but back to where you started. It doesn't help, Hebrews says. Can't take away sins. That's the religion of Cain. You know, I sometimes think that when they made that first offering to God and God said, I accept Abel's and I don't accept yours. Cain might have said to God, but give me a chance. That's only the first one. You know, I'll even vary this. I'll turn it into a real religion if you want me to. I'll come every week. Choose the day, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, I don't mind which one it is. And when I come, I will go through the same motions and I'll do this and I'll do that, whatever you want me to do. And every now and again, once a year, when we have a harvest of all the fruits at the end of summer, I'll come and have a harvest festival. And I'll have holy days and I'll have happy days and I'll have somber days. Like we have Good Friday, somber day, Easter Sunday, a happy day. Islam, Eid al-Adah, somber day, Eid al-Fitr, happy day. Israel the same, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, somber day. Feast of Tabernacles, happy day. I'll go through all these formalities. We'll go around any number of circles you want me to. Why do you knock me off after just one? God would have said to him, what Abel has done is sufficient. And he has to do it once. And I'll come to that in a minute. Islam is a religion that perhaps is the worst example of the religion of Cain. It is just literally saturated and boxed into formalities of every description. So much so that uh, in Islamic tradition, they've gone to such incredible lengths like the Pharisees did of old with Sabbath observance, that with some ceremonies depends on which foot you put through the door first. You put the right foot fine, you put the left foot, you're out of order with God. It's, it's crazy. It's not enough to wear a beard. To follow the sunnah of the prophet, no, you've got to wear it the right length. I've even heard Muslims tell me that, you know, all the Muslims who follow the fast of Ramadan and fast from morning till night, most of them won't be accepted of them. I said, why not? So they don't break it at the right moment. You must break the fast within 30 seconds of sunset. And so they keep a date in their pockets and they go around. And the moment they've determined that sun is set, then they eat the date and only their fast will be observed, not because it will be accepted, not because it was observed properly, because it was broken properly. Islam says nothing of the sort, but they must take it further, as if Islam hasn't got enough restrictive rituals and things as it has. But even then, what Islam has, the Hajj pilgrimage, dot for dot, letter for letter, every Muslim has to do the same thing, an outward performance. And as I've so often even said to Muslims, I've said the difference between the religion of Cain and the faith of Abel is that in the religion of Cain, the man says, what am I? What is my dress? Am I a Muslim? Am I a Christian? If I wear a beard and I have a skull cap and I dress in white and I wear sandals, then I'm a Muslim. On the outside, you can see that. But the faith of Abel says, who am I? Who am I? Am I on the inside, a person who loves God with all my heart, soul and mind? Am I being redeemed and am I being regenerated? That is the key question. Circular routines. You know, I remember some years ago, a Muslim woman saying to me, you know, I don't know that there's any difference between Christians and Muslims. You know, they all seem to do the same thing. We, we got our mosque, you got your church. Uh, we worship on Fridays, you worship on Sundays. We give our giving, you give your giving. We do our prayers, you do your prayers. You know, whatever you got, we can match. She says, when I go to the cemetery and I look and on the one side I see the Christian graves, on the other side I see the Muslim graves, and I say, what's the difference? 
And I say to myself, well, if you're looking for the living among the dead, lady, there isn't one. Believe me. But I remember sitting in another Muslim home once where a woman was telling us what she teaches all the little Muslim children. And this is what she told us. And I had to sit there and stop my eyes getting blinkered. She said, you know, she says, I tell them that every day, five times a day, the angels come down with their cameras. And they come to see what you are doing when you should be praying. Because every Muslim should be praying five times a day. And the angels come down from heaven with their cameras and they photograph you. And when the Yom Al-Qiyama comes, the day of judgment, Allah is going to ask the angels to put those photographs beforehand. And if you are seen in all those photographs that you were praying to Allah, you'll be fine. But if you weren't and you were doing other things, you're going to be condemned. <laughs> Stood stunned. I just looked at one of my friends next to me and I said, I wonder what the angels did in the days before cameras were invented. <laughs> but I mean... This is where this former monotheism, this religion of Cain, really dries out. I mean, imagine just thinking that the only thing God is concerned about is that you're praying when you should be praying, like everybody else. I'm just conforming to a pattern. I'm just doing what everybody else does at the right time of day. That's what Cain did. God, I did it right at the right time of day. The rest of my life is mine. And that's what she's virtually telling her children. The rest of your life is yours. rest of your day to do as you choose. Allah doesn't mind. Fine. You do as you like. Just make sure that when the call to prayer comes, you're there. Get my point. Religion of Cain. And here again, the whole uselessness of it comes out in Hebrews 9, verses 9 to 10. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various ablutions, regulation for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Can I sharpen this and focus it? Any outward form of religious identification, whether it's Christian, Muslim, Jewish, or anything, is a religion of Cain. The Christian, in my view, should never, the believing Christian, have anything that he wears or any badge of any kind that identifies him as a Christian on the outside. It has to be the expression of a living faith on the inside and nothing else. The fruits of that faith in love, in obedience, and in trust towards God, and in compassion, kindness, devotion towards our fellow man. It's Christianity. That's the faith of Abel in a nutshell. Let me tell you what Abraham's response was to God. His was different to Cain's. He took one look at God, and I can tell you what his attitude was. He, I'm sure he didn't say it, but the Lord saw it, read it. That's why he had regard for Abel's offering. I know that I am deeply implicated in what happened in the Garden of Eden. When you cast my parents out, you cast them out because they'd become nothing more than flesh and blood. They'd come from the dust, and they were destined to go back to it. And I'm no different, and I'm not going to blame them. I know my own sinfulness. I know that I can be cold towards you. I can be as bad as him, as Cain. I can be just like him, I can be cold. But Lord, deep in my heart, I'm warm. I'm actually warm to you. The first man. I mean, I wonder how God felt to see the first man on earth, a hint that God's hope that it could still come right was being fulfilled. A man on earth saying to God, I want to get back. I want to get it right between you and me. I really do love you. I would like to see the fulfillment of everything that you have created us for. 
I want to see beyond this life of dust you are and to dust you will return. I want to get beyond that. I want to get to an eternal city if you have one. I know you promised in the garden. You made a clear statement to the serpent. Genesis 3.15. You said to him that, behold, I will bring enmity between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head. You may bruise his heel. You may injure him, but he will fatally wound you. I'm going to bank on that, said Abel. I'm going to bank on your salvation. But if his heel is going to be bruised, it's one thing I know, Lord, it's his heel, yours. It's your heel that's going to be bruised. And I have a suspicion that the only way I can be redeemed is for you to redeem me. I have a strong suspicion it's going to come at considerable cost to you. So I'm giving you back what is your own. I'm not offering anything to you that is the fruit of my labors. I'm taking these lambs that you've given me. They're my sustenance. They provide my clothing and they provide my food. And I'm giving them back to you. And I'm sacrificing them because I think my redemption is going to come at considerable cost to you. God says, I don't need to hear that more than once. Because I will send one single human being who by one single offering will do exactly what you're symbolizing. Will fulfill it. He never told Abel that. But he reminded himself of it. True faith in God's redemptive grace is the only true religion in the world. It's not found in any other religion of the world but Christianity. But Christianity is not that religion. Don't get this wrong. The re- Christianity, wonderful religion. It actually branches off into two totally different religions as heaven sees it. For 23 years of my life, I followed the religion of Cain. I was more faithful in church attendance than I am now. I had more time for church attendance than I have now. The reason I haven't got that much time now is because I'm in God's service and I'm in evangelism and outreach and all sorts of other things. But in those days, the church for me was the focal point of everything. I used to wear robes. I used to carry the cross. I grew up in one of those churches. I wasn't a Catholic, but I was in what I call the Anglo-Catholic church. But when I came to know the Lord Jesus, I threw all that off. And I swapped religions. Let me put it to you like this. If we saw two people in a church one day, and one of them is sitting in the pew and then right next to the other, and they're both doing the same thing, both praying to God, both worshiping God, both, say, let's say, Presbyterian, Baptist, whatever. They even follow the same church, never mind the same religion. And you heard that one of them had converted to Islam, but the other one had become a born-again Christian believer. What we would say is the one has converted. He's changed his religion, swapped from Christianity to Islam. But we would say the other one has found his religion. He's come to a living faith in Jesus. Heaven shakes its head, says you got it wrong. Got it wrong. Says the first one hasn't converted. He's just swapped one form of of monotheism for another. He's no different. He's just gone for something that is more formally monotheistic, looks better, more impressive, which Islam is when it really identifies itself. The other one has been converted. He's given up his religion. He used to follow the religion of Cain, and he just goes through formalities once a week, but now he follows the faith of Abel. You know, I see this so often just in listening to Christian people talk, and I'll give you an example. Good Friday, Easter Sunday, a part of Christian tradition. They're all over our Christian calendars, and every church acknowledges them. But Jesus never asked us, 
to observe Good Friday or Easter Sunday. What he did ask us to do is to commemorate his death every time we came together. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do it in remembrance of me. All right, fine, no problem. But I've heard Christians say that Good Friday is something that has to be retained. In my country, South Africa, we no longer have a government that calls itself Christian. We now have a government that says it is secular, just there for the country, and it respects all religions in the country. So there have been talk all over of changing the Christian holidays. Already the day of ascension is gone. Uh, we used to have a Thursday, 40 days after Easter, whenever it was, that became Ascension Day. It's gone. It's no longer on the calendar. And there's talk now in South Africa of abolishing Good Friday and Easter Monday as public holidays. And that's causing a furore among Christians. And I've heard one or two say to me, you know, it's a witness to the world. On Good Friday, we are witnessing to the world and we're showing them our belief in Jesus and we remind ourselves of his death once a year. <sighs> That is the religion of Cain. Faith of Abel is to live by that redemptive faith 365 days a year and let the world see it. That's the true faith. Do you think the world looks at our church attendance on Good Friday and admires it? No. You know what the Muslim says? You have your Good Friday, we have our Laylatul Qadr. You have your Christmas, we have our Christmas. With you it's on 25th of December, with us it's on Eid al-Fitr. They don't see any difference. All they see this as is once a year, we come around and we stand and we get very sober. We take the cloth off the altar and we simply bow down and we say to God, here we are and we'll be very somber today. We'll remember the death of Jesus. When Jesus is alive, sitting on the throne of heaven and he's coming back in eternal glory. And I just wonder what, what, what's in the mind of it. It's just not there. He doesn't want us one day a year to go there and feel sorry for him. No, he doesn't want us to bury him again. That's the religion of Cain. Comes around once a year like Cain would have done. Said he has the harvest festival. No, it's a living experience. I watched a discovery video not long ago called Jerusalem City of Heaven. And it's all about Muslims, Jews and Christians. And very interesting film because what it does is quite comical actually. It shows how the poor Israeli police had to go into a Christian church in Jerusalem, one of the most famous ones, and break up a fisticuffs between two different groups of Christian people, all dressed in robes, all very holy and religious, but they both wanted to use this church on a holy day. Not sure whether it was Easter or Christmas, they don't say. But because they allowed two of them to use it at the same time, what happened was that they demarcated it, that you only allowed to use that portion, and the other groups only allowed to use this portion. But unfortunately, more of the one group came in before the other, so they sort of overlapped onto their side, onto their turf, as it were. And this caused so much rupture. They said, we want to have our worship service. While you're having yours, you're not allowed to have it on our turf. And it led to fisticuffs. It happened recently. Just in, uh, I think it was in 2008, it happened again, or 2009, this year. I read it in the newspaper that they'd come to fisticuffs and blows, and the first time I know for sure the Israeli police had to go in and separate them. And it's the same with the Jewish religion. There are people in Israel who have stood, very religious Jews at times, and they've lined the roads on Saturdays. And if cars come down the roads, they have a look. If an Arab comes and he's a Muslim, they let him go. If they think he's a Christian, they let him go. But if they can see he's a Jew, they want to stone him because they're not observing the Sabbath. And again, the Israeli police come in and have to separate them. 
Jew fighting against Jew, Christian fighting against Christian, all to maintain the formalities of their religion and the Muslims fighting with everybody. The film finishes with a lovely comment from an elderly Muslim who just, you know, he's seen it all. You can just see the look on their face. I've been in Jerusalem all my life and I've seen it all. So he says, you know, he says, this is called Jerusalem, Ura Shalom, city of peace. He says, I don't think this city's had a day's peace in its life, certainly not in my life, he says. And he finishes off and he says, you know, there are only three big businesses in Jerusalem, only three. One collects money on Fridays, the next one on Saturdays, and the third one on Sundays. <laughs> I said to myself, retitle that video. Don't call it Jerusalem, city of heaven. Call it Jerusalem, citadel of Cain, because that's what it is. That's what all that is. I was just looking at this and I thought, you can call this video the religion of Cain. Formal monotheism, people trying with an outward show and judging themselves by the outward appearance to earn God's favor. And that's what Muslims do. But get this right, a lot of Christians are doing the same. And in that sense, it's one religion. Let me get to the core of this. When God called Abraham, he called him out of his city. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, he left the city of his forefathers. By faith, he sojourned in a foreign land. So it took an exercise of faith for Abraham to move out. And when God saw that Abraham was prepared to listen, just to his word to say, come out of there, just come out. He didn't say to Abraham, go and perform a pilgrimage somewhere. He didn't tell him how many times a day he had to pray. He didn't wait to see whether he would fast consistently. He just said to him, get out of there. Fine, I'll go. I'll give you this land as an inheritance. And then God said to him, Genesis 15, fear not, Abraham. I am your God and your reward will be very great. Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your descendants be. This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir. Your own son will be your heir. So all God did was to say to him, I'll give you a son. Promise. Oh, lovely. I mean, I have two sons. They're a blessing to me. God has blessed me. Didn't have to work for them. Not, didn't have to do anything to sweat or to earn the privilege of having sons. So you would say well, it was a very easy thing for Abraham to do. But you know what God did? He said, fine, I reckon that to you is righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. In other words, that settles the playing field between us. Abraham, you've believed me. That's enough. Now we're on an even footing. I'm showing you my faithfulness and you've responded in faith. And he reckons it to him as righteousness means, okay, we've settled the issue now between us. You don't have to gain my favor. I've given it to you as a gift. Simple. I always say that Muslims spend all their lives trying to gain what Abraham was given right at the start. Try to end where Abraham began. From that moment, they were on a faith-based relationship. Abraham's faith responding to God's faithfulness. This is the only true religion in the world. But do you think it was easy? started off very easily. But from there on, it was a tough call. Firstly, when Ishmael reached 14 years of age, God spoke to Abraham and he heard his voice. He said, oh, now I'm going to see that this promise begin to be fulfilled. He'd probably been watching Ishmael. Very name meant God hears. And he thought that when Ishmael was born, that he was a child of the promise. 
And then God says to him, Genesis 17, verse 16, I will give you a son by your wife, Sarah, and I will perpetuate my covenant through him. Oh, first Abraham laughs. What? At my age and her age? And she's been barren all her life? But as he listens, suddenly he gets a bit of a cold shiver and he realizes what God is saying to him. It's not Ishmael. Give you another son. And Abraham obviously loved Ishmael, so he cries out to God, Oh, that Ishmael, oh, that God hears might live in your sight. And God says to him in one simple word, No. Make a great nation out of him, but I'll make my covenant through Isaac. Genesis 17, 18 to 19. So God tests Abraham's faith. Just at the age, he waited just till the age when it looked as though Ishmael would be the fulfillment of the promise. And God says, reject him. All right, Isaac is born and Abraham loves Isaac. This time he knows for sure that he is the child of the covenant. But as he gets to the same age, same thing happens again. Haven't heard from God for about 14 years. And then he hears these words. Firstly, one word, Abraham. And he responds, and perhaps not with quite such enthusiasm this time, but at least confidence. Now I really am going to see how the promise is going to be fulfilled. And God says to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Yes, Lord. And do what? Give him a home? Find a wife? No. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. <laughs> Genesis 22 Verse 2, Abraham, I told you to reject Ishmael. I'm telling you to slaughter Isaac. For Abraham, this was the ultimate test of his faith in God. As we've seen in another talk, and I'm not going to repeat it, but just to mention it, he had to resolve the morality issue. didn't look like the sort of thing God would ever command of a man to offer your son to him. Secondly, it had to test the promise issue. How could God fulfill his promise? Now, when he had already promised me I'd have descendants of the, like the stars of the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore, how can that be fulfilled? And thirdly, I happen to love this son of mine. You said so yourself. You want me to give the apple of my eye for you? But you see, Abraham did all three. He settled the promise issue. I believe God will be true to his word. I'm going to continue keeping my faith in God's faithfulness. I'll respond to it. I will reflect it. And I believe God will bring him back from the ashes. So Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, verse 19, he considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead. So figuratively speaking, he got him back. But he did it by faith. By faith, he offered up Isaac. See what it is? And through that, he realized that as uh, the Bible goes on to show, as Jesus mentioned in John 8, 56, that he foresaw the day when God would give his son for us. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, never mind Isaac's day. And he saw it and he was glad. So for that reason, Abraham said, well, now I see the promise being fulfilled. I see the morality of this. And if in giving my son for you, you've allowed me to see that you will one day fulfill what Abel was after when he offered those uh, fatlings of his flock for you. That's the sacrifice. I don't like it. It looks tough. For you it must be hard. But I will rejoice because I know it will bring about my redemption. By faith. That's the only true religion on earth. For a Christian, it's the only true one. It's the only thing God accepts. Faith 
responding to God's faithfulness. We see here exactly the same thing in Hebrews 11 with other patriarchs as well. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob blessed each of the sons of Joseph, leaning in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and said, take my bones back with you. Single acts that just showed where they belonged. That's all. They just said, we're with God and we're with his people. Nothing more than that. You can't find anywhere in all this catalog, this, as I say, this genealogy of true believers, the true sons of Abel, the ones who followed that only true religion by faith, Abel. <clears throat> Not one of them is commended for religious devotion, uh, consistency and repetitive worship, going through the motions, being identified, looking good in the sight of men and hopefully in the sight of God as well. Not at all singled out for a single act of faith like Abel that just mocked them out that you knew where they belonged. <clears throat> all these, though well attested by their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had foreseen something better from us that without us they should not be made perfect. This is not formal monotheism. This is not conforming to holy days and things like that. That the New Testament tells us we shake off. Paul says in Colossians, these are only a shadow of things that have passed. Sunshine has now come, so we follow it. Now finally, the gospel. Romans 4:22 to 25 says, that is why Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. But the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe. Notice that? No more. Who believe in him that raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham's faith was just a foresight. He saw my day, Jesus said, and he was glad. He was a prototype of a true Christian believer. But ours is a fulfillment. We have the advantage of being on the other side of this and we can see where it was all fulfilled. So we live by faith in Jesus alone. Abraham lived by the joy and the hope of what was coming. We live by believing in it, by living in Jesus. In South Africa, we have a well-known ex-national sportsman who's become a Christian believer by the name of Peter Pollock. I sat with him one day and we were just talking about evangelism because he's a burning Christian. He's got a lovely heart for God. He's well-known nationally as being a committed Christian believer. And he just said to me, he said, God doesn't want us to edit the gospel. He doesn't want us to improve it. He doesn't want us to be going forward beyond it. He doesn't want us to contextualize it. He doesn't want us to categorize it. He doesn't want us to do any of these things. You know what he wants us to do? Believe it and proclaim it. <laughs> we always want to be going forward. We always want to be moving away from where we are and going on to something better. But you know, the true faith never goes forward. It always goes backward. Because the mark of it has been put there. The fulfillment of it is there. When Jesus died and rose again, there it is. So we go back to God's promises. We go back to the crucifixion. We go back to the scriptures. Because for us, it's the outworking. It's a fulfillment. It's a strengthening of what is already there. That is true faith. That's why the gospel, we should never try 
to, to do something to make it better. Never try to find new methods and ways of making people believe. Almost trying to fast forward the work of the Holy Spirit. He's working in his own good time. He'll get it all done and it'll come to fulfillment. It's not the way we think it should be. It's all about faith. And this is, comes out so beautifully in a contrast between two things in the Old and New Testament that just define the difference between what happens with the religion of Cain and what happens with the faith of Abel. Genesis 32 verses 27 to 28. And Moses said after the people of Israel had turned away from worshipping God and they had just had a golden calf and everything else made because they just wanted to shake off the God of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, put every man his sword on his side and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. That's what happens. When you give people a religion of law, conformity to a system, they rebel. Paul says in Romans 7, the very commandment that promised life proved death to me, sin finding opportunity in the commandment deceived at me and by it, it killed me. And it killed 3,000 men that day. But when Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and spoke to all the people of Israel gathered together for the Pentecost festival and preached the gospel of Jesus to them, this is what happened. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Reading from Acts 2, 37 following. Peter said, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you, to your children, to all that are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. So those, going on, those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day, about 3,000 souls. <laughs> More than coincidence. When the law came, it stood only in the form of which the people saw it as nothing but a cold repetition and conformity to God's laws. It stood to condemn them and 3,000 people died. When the grace of God came and the Spirit of God was poured out on people who were prepared to hear the message and believe, it brought about their eternal salvation and they were added. The one brought death, the other brings life. You see, it goes right back. Cain and Abel, for the one it was rejection, the other it was acceptance. And here it goes, right through the scripture. These are the three religions. Antitheism is more of an aberration. It's turning away from God. But for the rest, all people on the earth, and almost half the earth to this day remains monotheistic. But the vast majority are following a very disastrous path. It can only lead to destruction in the end, the religion of Cain. It is Christians who follow the faith of Abel. Just give it to you here in a nutshell. All that Acts says. I just want to read these words because I love them. And this is the people who heard the gospel. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Stop there. Four words. Cut to the heart. That's all they needed. When David sinned against God, committed adultery with Bathsheba, and arranged for the death of her husband to try and exonerate himself, when the word of God came to him and exposed his sin, he was cut to the heart, creating me a new heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Jesus put the same of the prodigal son. 
He goes away, he squanders all his father's uh, living, everything his father had worked so hard to build up for him, and he just said, give it to me now, and he walked away from it and took it for himself and wasted it. And then Jesus says, but when, and here come four words, he came to himself, nothing more. He then said, I will return to my father and say, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Lovely, just four words. Cut to the heart, came to himself. What is the answer of Jesus? Four words. Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> True faith. I've given you this talk here this morning to bring about what I believe is a much more clarified biblical focus on the issues between what, where we are and where Muslims are. We are not Christians representing the Christian church. We're not fighting to win a battle for Christianity, although I think too often I, I, we all do. I've done it and we all do. We're trying to win battles for God. We want to fight everybody else on equal terms and we get worked up with everything that's going on in the world around us and we want to see Christianity win the battle. No, no. That battle's won long ago. What we're all about is winning souls to Jesus. And that means we just lay our lives down on the line. And even if we lost our lives, we can't lose anything. We've lost them anyway. They're going to go. But we've lost ourselves to Jesus. And so we have the guarantee of our inheritance of eternal life and we can't lose. I hear people saying to me in business, in my country in particular, where corruption has become a bad thing, everybody else is corrupt. So the only way I can survive is to be corrupt like them. I won't survive otherwise. It works for them. Crime pays. Don't tell me it doesn't. It does. It's working for them. Unless I get corrupt like them, I can't survive. They don't put it in those words. They put it in much more dignified language, but that's what they're saying. And I had a Christian friend of mine phone me the other day. He's a colleague of mine. He's an attorney like me. And he said to me, this particular real estate agency wants me to do a few things that are corrupt. He wants me to deceive the banks so that we can get loans granted on false information and on corrupt deals and make look as though the buyer has got more money than he has and he's better qualified for the loan. And he said, you know, he said, I've heard other people say, you've got to do it, you've got to survive. There's no way you can survive, you've got to go along with it. What do you say? And I said to him, well, as far as I know, a Christian believer should only be wanting to survive two things. You want to survive death, you want to survive the judgment. That's what I'm interested in surviving. I'm not going to survive this life. Now, this body is under a sentence of death. It's going to decay. It's going to corrupt. It's going back to the dust. Abel knew that. So do I. But I look forward to a heavenly city that is to come. When that comes, I want to be there. And I want to recognize it when I see it. I don't want to get there and wonder where I am. I want to know it for what it is. To survive death and live again. And to survive the judgment and be taken into the kingdom of God. That's the Christian message. And towards Islam... If we see that and we live more by faith alone and we witness in that faith, I believe as Christians we're going to have a far more emphatic witness than if we see ourselves as representing the church, as having to make out a case for the church worldwide. By that I mean not your local church. I just mean the whole wide extension of the church. Most of that church is following another religion, the religion of Cain has been doing so. And if you study Christian history in the Middle Ages and elsewhere, you'll find things that match anything that Muslims do in their commitment to Islam. All the wickedness, all the evil, everything that Al-Qaeda does today. You can find at the time of the Crusades, how they did it to the Muslims then. You can find it 500 years later, 
what the Catholics in Italy and elsewhere did to their own people, the thought police, the Inquisition, just to make sure that everybody conformed to Catholic doctrine and didn't see the light of the gospel. That's the religion of Cain. We stand far better when we stand on only one foundation as a believing people and our living faith in Jesus Christ. See it that way. Just get it into focus. Not to follow formal monotheism. We don't have to perpetuate that. We don't have to do the same thing to look as though we're keeping up appearances and identifying with other people and that's how we get through to them. Nonsense. It's when we are different to them. It's when they see like Abel that we live purely by a simple faith in this Lord who redeemed us and we say to God, I love you, I trust you, and I'm prepared to obey you. When, the, when Muslims see that in contrast to this cold conformity and they see a living faith more likely to believe the gospel we preach and we're more likely to preach it for what it is.